scripture reading is from Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 329 in our worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. First, or from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Jerubabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kedmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of God. Well, thank you, Janice. Appreciate that. A lot of hard word names to say in that passage, weren't there? And I was thinking about when we went to Honduras recently. You know what's a really hard name to say in Spanish? Steve. It, it is. 
Those of you, any of you who speak Spanish, you would know it's, es, it's Esteban, right? But the word, to say it just Steve or Stephen, that's not, you wouldn't say an S with it. So what's strange for us is not you know, always, you know, what's comfortable for us is not always comfortable for others, so as well. Uh, well, hey, we're in the middle of the Daily Bread Project, and we begin this little book called Ezra. And one of the things that happens when we take this trek is I have no way of controlling where we're going to be or what we're going to be doing, and I just have to assume that somewhere in the midst of all this, there are things God wants us to learn in the middle of it. That's kind of the way this thing, this thing goes. And so we get to look this little book of Ezra. And the thing I want you to think about today as we take a look at this book of Ezra is this whole idea of worship. What is it? What's it about? Why do we do it? What matters in the middle of it? We can learn a lot about that from the book of Ezra. Let's imagine that you took a trip this morning and had the chance to visit every worship service that occurs here in the Phoenix area. You just kind of scan through them. You would find a tremendous variety of experiences, wouldn't you? Some of them would be very loud. Some of them would be very quiet. Some of them would be very massive. Some would be very small. Some would be highly intellectual. Some would be very emotional, right? Some would identify the worship as being, if you have a really good feeling at the end of the worship, if God really seemed to be present, that meant it a good worship. Other people would leave the service and say, boy, the Word of God was taught today. Wasn't that great worship? It's not always the same in every church. Or, boy, oh, boy, I got a practical message from the Scriptures. I really got help today. That was good. Oh, boy, oh, boy, I... Uh, I, I, I met some great people today. You know, what is it that makes for a great worshiper? If you visit all these services, you'd find that some seek to be very contemporary, and some seek to be the absolute opposite of contemporary. They want to be timeless, although they might have picked a time in 1750 or 1950 or whatever, but they don't want to be contemporary, right? Some use a liturgy, a formal liturgy. Some use a very informal liturgy. Some are more free form. Some talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. <laughs> Sorry about that. Good thing you weren't sitting any closer. I might have splashed on you, Janine. Uh, some talk about the Holy... Maybe those guys spit a lot as well, yeah? Some talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. Some talk about the Bible a lot. Some talk about politics a lot. Some talk about who knows what they talk about. There's lots of things that get talked about in a worship. Some focus on orthodoxy. Some focus on orthopraxy. Yeah, there's very different kinds of worship. It can be confusing. And so we come together in one of the most unusual settings for worship that anybody could ever go to, at least in the United States. We're sitting outdoors in, don't look, but it's hot. Don't look at the temperature gauge, but it's hot, right? And we're sitting here, and we have uh, guitar and harmonica. Uh, we're wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots. We're sitting under trees or under a canopy. We're blowing wind. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and so, to keep you kind of cool, what is really the core of worship? What's it really all about? We might feel a little bit like that woman that Jesus saw beside a well, a hot well, on a tired afternoon in the town of Samaria. He sat by the well because he was tired. And a woman came there to draw a well, and it was the middle of the day, not the normal time. And he said to her, could I have a drink? Actually, he said, give me a drink is what he said. She said, sir, you don't have any water, to, well, to, water uh, pail to draw with. They have a conversation. 
In the midst of that conversation, she asked him, you know, I have a question for you. You seem to be a prophet. Where's the right place to worship? Is it here on our mountain where we worship or down on your mountain where you worship? And Jesus said, you know, uh, God is seeking after such as who will worship Him, but those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. When we take a look at this little book of Ezra, we see, among other things, that it gives to us some very valuable principles and helpful tools to understand this whole idea of worship. And so we're going to take, this is just one little snippet of Scripture, but I want you to see, and I have to be a little bit historical and a little bit theological for you today, so I hope that'll be okay. I'll do it as quickly as well as I can, but this is kind of where we are. We want to see something about the context of worship, the essence of worship, the focus of worship, and the foundation of worship. Number one, the context of worship. These are some things just want you to track with me and think a little bit with me as you can. I want you to see, first of all, that the context of worship is orientation orientation. Now, this is not a very good point to start out with, but it's important for us to understand it to begin with. What we need to see is that in, in the midst of a hostile culture, we need, we need worship to help us orient around the, us around the truth of who we are and what life is really all about. That's what was going on. Look at this text as Janice read it for you. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns. They came Jeshua and his fellow priests and, 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 and Zerubbabel as well. They set their altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Did you see that phrase? They set their altar in place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. What's going on? All right, here's your big little historical lesson. God had brought the people of Israel to Canaan. He had given them kings, Saul, uh, Saul, David, Solomon. Then they were disobedient. They split up into two kingdoms. And ultimately, the land of Israel and the kings in the southern kingdom of Israel ultimately were captured by the Babylonians. This happened around 600 B.C., from 606 to 586 B.C. They were captured. They were exiled away, brought over to Babylon. As far as anybody knew, Israel would have been dead and gone and buried forever. In fact, cultures have had that happen to them many times, and that's the way it seemed it would be. They were there for 700 years. Imagine that someone came in and transplanted 700, excuse me. Some of you said, wait a minute, 70 years, 70 years. Someone came and transplanted you on the other side of the world and plopped you somewhere new. You begin after a while to take on the culture, the language. You lose your identity after a number of generations. Several generations really had gone by. That's where these people were. God had told them they would bring them back to the land someday, but in the meantime, they should seek to be a blessing in the community where they had been planted. That was in, that was in letter to Jeremiah. Be a blessing in the community where you've been planted. And so they they were. They, they were a blessing to the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were conquered by the, the Persians in the early, in the late, uh, early 600s, in the late, uh, and so what happened is around 606 B.C., the new king, whose name was Cyrus, decided to be benevolent to that area and to various areas around, send them back to their homeland, and invite them to build places of worship, their worship in their homeland. Cyrus was a good politician, really. What Cyrus understood is that if he could send those people back to their lands and encourage them to worship their gods, that just might help him be a better king as well. He could he'd use all the God support he could get, right? So he sent any who wanted to go to go back to the land of Israel. And this happened not just for the Israelites, but for other cultures as well. They weren't the only ones. 
Okay? And so they go back and they show up in their land that has been abandoned essentially by them 70 years before. Almost nobody who shows up there ever lived there. If they did, they were at 70, 80 years old, right? They were, they, they were, they, and they probably just stayed back where they were. Most of them, this was their parents, their grandparents' land. It wasn't their land, but it was the promised land, and they believe God had called them to go back. So they've gone back to uh, the land of, uh, of, of Canaan, the southern kingdom, and other people are living there now, right? They've camped in there, and they're living there, and they're not really very happy to see these people come back into the land. So they are a fearful bunch. They show up. The temple, 70 years before, had been burned. There were, it, was made out of, it wasn't just made out of wood, so parts of it were still standing, but it had been burned. Much of the city had been razed to the ground, and they come into this desolate land, and yet they've come back to the promised land, and they want to be reminded of who they are in a hostile land. So the first thing they did was they rebuilt the altar. They began to worship. That's what's going on in chapter 3. They rebuilt the altar. And even before the temple was constructed, they began to worship. The context for worship for them was orientation. They needed to see who they were in the midst of a culture that didn't always approve of their way of being. I mean, these Jews had strange customs. They only worked one day in six, right? They would not work on the Sabbath day. How would you like to have been their employer when everybody else will work on the Sabbath day, but the guy says, I can't. You just think he's lazy, right? There's lots of difficulty for you to live like the people of God under the lordship of God's covenant in an alien land. And that's why they needed worship. They needed worship in order to orient themselves in the landscape that God had placed them under which they lived under God's lordship. They needed worship to remind them of who they were, to assure them that God was in control, and to guide them in their daily lives. That's what they needed worship for. They needed worship, number one, to remind them of who they were. They were the people of God. God had called them. It didn't look to anyone else like they had any special place. They were simply slaves or subjects to now the Persians there. They, but they believed that they were called but to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, and this was the place. They needed to orient themselves around that truth. They needed worship, secondly, to, remind, to assure them that God was in control. They wanted to orient them Number one, to orient, understand that God, that they belong to God, remind them of who they are, to assure them that God was in control. Number two, or point B, I guess, if you're taking notes. They needed to see that it, although it looked like everything else was out of control around them, truly God was in control. God was in charge. God had called them. God had placed his love on them. God had made them his people. God had brought them back into the land. God had not abandoned them. God would accomplish something great through them. It didn't look like it, but they wanted to believe it. They knew it was, they knew it was true. They needed worship to remind them of who they were, to assure them that God was in control, and number three, to guide them in their daily lives. They had made a mess of things in generations past. That's why they had lost their country and their, their temple. 
and their independence. They had followed the gods of their culture. Now they were back in this land, and they would need to remind them that we need to have God's wisdom to live our lives. We need to live as God's people in the midst of this culture. We can't do like our great-grandparents did before us and just capitulate to the culture around us. We need God's guidance. We need to study His Word, understand it, apply it to our lives, become a community, God's light in this dark world. That's what the worship was about. And if you haven't kept the idea, there's some application of that for you too, isn't there? Don't we not need to be reminded of who we are in a land which sometimes feels hostile to us, in a culture which doesn't acknowledge the things we think are important, in a culture which makes us feel as if our opinions don't matter and as if our God's ways are not going to thrive? We need to be reminded of whom it is to which to whom it is that we belong. Will you clarify that, that sentence for me when you edit that? <laughs> it didn't come out quite right, did it? He, we need to be reminded whose we are. Because if we're not careful, we will identify our first, ourselves, first of all, by our ethnic identity, or by our national identity, or by our political identity, or by our economic identity, or whatever or by our baseball team identity, whatever. We've got to have an identity. Worship is in part to remember that fundamentally you belong to God. Remind you of who you are. That's how we come together. Sometimes we come together limping into this place because we've been beat up by the culture around us or by some of our own bad choices. But we come in and we be reminded, oh, here I am, here we are, broken and bruised, needing a cure. Here we are, and here you are. Right? That's why we do those songs, to remind us of who God is and what God has done. This is my Father's world. Uh, the battle is not done. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. I didn't get it quite right. That's why we need to be reminded, because those are the true things. We need to be reminded of who we are and to be assured that God has control and we need God's guidance in our daily lives. Yes, we come to worship not just to get a a practical tidbit to help me make a good decision next week, but to orient ourselves around the truth of God. Worship is finding true north. Worship is finding plumb center. Worship is beginning to say what really matters. The context of worship is orientation. Oh, my goodness. We are in trouble. I will be, I promise, I will stop soon. <laughs> Number two, the essence of worship, the essence of worship is offering. You never thought of that, did you? The essence of worship is offering, offering. The main word, uh, this is just a way of looking at it. I want you to think through. The main word for worship in biblical Hebrew is to bow down. It's to lay prostrate before, to bow down Toward. And I like this word offering because what we are trying to do is we are wanting to offer ourselves to the God to whom we belong. We offer ourselves to the God. Worship is not about you, it's about God. Try not to forget that. <laughs> we come to worship not because we want to get something, but because we intend to give something. 
to give our worship, our adoration, our love, our loyalty, to be reminded of that truth, to offer ourselves to God. Worship is an active word, okay? Worship is not a passive word. It's an active word. It means even one word is to bow down to kiss, to bow down towards. We offer ourselves to the God who rescued us. It's not just a feeling that we get when we come. It's not just to get a refueling for the future. It's to offer myself to the God who loved me and gave himself for me and to hear from him his wisdom for my life so that I can go out there and carry, out, carry it out according to his will. Jesus was once asked what the greatest commandment of all was, and you know what it was, right? The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Those are active words. When you come to worship, you're seeking to offer God your love, your love, a love that encompasses your heart. That means your affections, your affection. You offer your heart to the Lord. With all my soul. That means your whole self, your, your psyche, your, your whole self, the whole person, everything that you are, you offer it all to Him. Your mind, my intellect, I offer my mind to Him and say, Lord, fill me with your truth. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of Thy law, right? It says in the Psalms. Uh, 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 and what sort of things are true? Think on these things or let your mind dwell on these things. Or Romans chapter 12. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but sober judgment, right? Offer your mind to God. How often do we do that? Or how often do we just say, well, I think <laughs> we have our natural kickback reaction to every situation, our minds, no, and my strength, and my strength, my actions to the Lord. I offer all of those to Him. And there are several offerings that are in this text. There is, I would say, first of all, a communal offering. They came together as one man. Chapter 3, verse 1. They gathered as one man to Jerusalem. That means they didn't just do it all by their lonelies. They didn't want it as a group together. There's something about coming together. They did it as a, it was a communal offering, and it was a, a sacrificial offering. They, verse 3, they set the altar in its place, and they offered the, the burnt offerings on it for the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. The, it was a sacrifice. They offered the offerings that were there. And, there, and then they, it was also a, a free will offering. Verse 5, they appointed the offerings of everyone and made a free will offering to the Lord. They gave of themselves and of their resources to the Lord. And it was even, in this case, a financial offering, verse 7. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink. What a blessing it's been. One of the frustrating things about not having our, our canvas cathedral up yet is that you guys have been so generous in giving the money to make that thing happen. Everything's ready except for the materials to get it done. And it's a blessing. We're going to rejoice in that in the next couple of weeks. And it was also, if you see, in addition to being a communal offering, a sacrificial offering, a free will offering, and a financial offering, it was a musical offering as well. 
And when the builders, verse 10, had laid the foundation of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with, with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For he is, I don't know what it was, but that's the tune I made up. For he is good. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Well, you can make up your own tune, but something, they sang something like that. They sang because it was true. This musical offering that the, our worship involves a musical offering as as well. And so that's what we want we do. That's why when we gather, we gather to offer ourselves to the Lord. Number 3, the focus of worship. The focus of worship is the gospel. The focus of worship is the gospel. And I'll stay with me here a little bit and see if you can follow this me. What they were doing there, let me I'll, let's go to verse 4. <clears throat> And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. What's this feast of booths? This feast of booths is the feast of tabernacle, tabernacles, the feast of Sukkot, they call it. It was a time when in the fall you would, you, you would build these tent structures ever worshiped in a tent? Well, you're doing it right now. You would build these tent structures, and for a week, your family would go camping, literally. And they still, Orthodox Jews do it still today. They create these camping structures. They live outside of their homes, and they stay together. Why? Because they were told by God this was one of the three main festivals of the year, and they were supposed to do this to remind them of the time when God brought them out of Israel, and they lived in the desert for those 40 years, to remind them of God's call and God's faithfulness, to remind them of God's great act of deliverance when they were brought out of the land of Egypt and to Toward the promised, uh, the promised land. So every every year you get together, and you build your little tent structure. You didn't go to the store and buy when you built it, right? And you build that up, and you live there as a family for that week. And you would tell these stories. What were they doing? They were celebrating God's great act of deliverance. Every year, they, and that's what they were doing right then. They came into the uh, place of Israel, uh, J Jerusalem, and they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, a feast of the booths, they call it, different names that they call it, uh, Sukkot, I think they call it today in, in the original language. They would celebrate that, that great gospel story, good news story of God's deliverance. Well, when we get together we get together to celebrate God's great gospel story, our deliverance, deliverance too, don't we? We do it not just once a year, but every week as we gather. Their gospel story remember, was remembered through the so-called, the festival of the tabernacles. But our gospel story is remembered through the Eucharist, through the Lord's table, through Holy Communion, for the Lord's Supper, through the bread and the wine through the breaking of the bread. We come to remember that great act of deliverance when God became one of us and looked like he was conquered by the powers of evil, who submitted to all the power of evil, but went through that to the other side into resurrection to take us 
through our, de- our own death, our own evil, our own, our own sin, our own structural evil, and bring about the good news of God's salvation through Jesus. We come together to remember that story, to retell that story, and to refocus our lives on that story. So here they were. They were there in Jerusalem. They, didn't even, they had just been there. They were a lonely group. They were a very small group. They were kind of like a remnant of a remnant of a remnant. Not much of them still left. They've come in, and the first thing that they want to do right after they get there is to build an altar to remind them of the sacrifice that it takes to make them be acceptable in God's presence. And when we come together, we come before an altar to remind us of the ultimate final sacrifice which was made for us in the person of Jesus. They built their tents for the Feast of the Tabernacles and had that celebration together to remind themselves of God's protection even through their wilderness wanderings. And we get together and we remind ourselves that no matter what it looks like, God is in control. No matter how, 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 no matter how topsy-turvy our lives feel, God is never panicking when it comes to your life. God is in the front of the boat sleeping. <laughs> and you're... It's frightened to death. God is not panicking about our culture. God is not panicking over our election. God is not panicking over the terrorist problems around the world. God is not panicking over anything. You are. We are. But we shouldn't be, should we? Because we have a God who came to us, gave his life for us. We remember and we refocus our lives around that. And then finally, very briefly, the foundation of our worship is the Scriptures. The foundation of our worship is the Scriptures. Several times throughout this, you see the reference, just throughout it as well. Um, they, uh, verse 2, um, verse two. it says, they, uh, they, they built the altar to the God of Israel with burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They did it because they read it in the Scriptures. And in the, the fourth verse as well, uh, they, uh, the, at the new moon, all the appointed feasts of the Lord, uh, excuse me, they, they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written, right? They did it as it is written. Verse 10, the, uh, they did it, they sang uh, uh, the according, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They decided to live their lives based upon the truths found in the Word of God. The Scriptures were their foundation for life and their wisdom for the future. The Scriptures are to be our wisdom for life and our guide for the future. They had rediscovered the Scripture, and now they were not going to make the same mistake as their parents and grandparents before them. They were going to learn that text. They are going to live by that text. They are going to die for that text. They are going to follow that text no matter what because this was the sole source of their hope because around them there was nothing but chaos. But that text told them the story about a God who had called them and rescued them and brought uh, salvation to them and still had a plan for them. And your life might be in chaos. You might have difficulty. But when you come to that text and you can be remembered, you can be reminded of the fact that God has called you. God has died for you. God has given you an eternal life. God is remaking you into the person he wants for you to be. If anyone is a new Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. We read this story. We teach this story. We tell this story. We try to live this story 
because it's, it's a crazy story out there. <laughs> so why do we gather? Well, we gather because we want to offer, we want to orient ourselves around the truth of God. We want to offer ourselves to the Lordship of God. We want to remind ourselves of the gospel of God, and we want to educate ourselves with the Word of God. That's what we do. That's what we come together. And if we do that faithfully, week by week, our lives will change, our families will change, our workplaces will change, our cultures will change, our communities will change, and yes, our world will change, and God's going to make it happen. Why? Because He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your steadfast love, which endures forever. Some of us are in the boat and we're panicking a bit like those disciples did with Jesus. All we can see is chaos and uncertainty and even death perhaps. But you are not afraid. You've even gone through death and conquered it. You were able to rise up and say to the land around, peace be still. Help us to find that peace that comes from trusting in you orienting our lives around you, focusing ourselves on your story, offering ourselves to you and building our lives on your word. Help us to do that, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.